Hello, I'm Crystal Grafton Combs, and you're listening to Coffee Talk with Crystal. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you have joined us before, welcome back. This podcast is a personal project designed to connect with the women of Alpha Omicron Pi and our greater community of sisters and friends. Sometimes I will answer questions from our sisters, and others I will invite friends to do the same. So thank you for listening, and now let's get to my next conversation. Hello, Shaku. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, Crystal. Shaku, we normally get started with introductions via the AOPI experience, but I want to do something a little bit different because you are particularly accomplished in various fields, and I think to go into that, that I want to share just a little bit about who you are, and then we will launch into our conversation. Um, You are Dr. Shaku Mary. You are a graduate of UC Berkeley. You are a licensed clinical psychologist with a specialty in evidence-based practice. You are active in your community where you serve as the vice president of the San Francisco Commission on the Status of Women. And of course, you are an active AOPI, serving as a member of our Rituals, Traditions, and Jewelry Committee, as well as chair of our nominating trustees. And most recently, you were awarded our prestigious Rose Award. So please allow me to add to your congratulations on that. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you. Very meaningful. Um, I do want to start at the beginning, which is your AOPI experience. So if you would share with our listeners how you came to be an AOPI. Absolutely. Um, So first of all, really, really glad to be having this conversation with you. And thinking about my AOPI experience is a source of tremendous joy for me. Um, It's definitely been um, such a positive experience and has really added to who I am and my sense of my identity and the way that I see the world. Um, So I'm always happy to talk about my AOPI experience. Um, I joined the Sigma chapter of AOPI at UC Berkeley my freshman year. And it was really my first exposure to the Greek system. Um, I am, you know, I immigrated to the United States um, as an infant with my parents directly from um, Iran to San Francisco. Um, And my parents stayed in the city of San Francisco, went to um, graduate school, completed their studies, and then decided to stay and become Americans and raise their family here. So my brother and I were raised in San Francisco. Um, I went to UC Berkeley having really no family or personal exposure to the Greek system. And so I went through recruitment, sort of, you know, it was all fresh and it was all new and it was all really wonderful. Um, And I really saw joining AOPI um, as expanding my family. Um, And that was sort of the, that was what AOPI gave me initially, was this idea of, you know, being on a very large campus um, in a really rigorous academic environment and feeling like I had a second family that was welcoming me. So there is a whole lot there that you just said. And I did not know, Shaku, that you immigrated here as an infant. I would love for you to share about, you just mentioned how you identify and that AOPI is a part of that. Talk to me a little bit about what that has been like 
for you just throughout your lifetime? Sure. Um, you know, I think my immigration story and my cultural identity, you know, everyone's is, is unique. Um, I think what makes mine a little different from other immigration stories is sort of there is this difference between people who immigrated to the United States um, as a choice, as like an active decision to become Americans um, versus people who are here um, in exile because of political or economic or religious you know, situations where they are originally from. Um, my family, my parents really chose, um, and th that is a privilege and that you know, brought with it a lot of privilege. Um, and they chose for higher education reasons, right? So that also opens lots of doors and kind of explains much about my identity and, and background. Um, my husband, for example, um, is also uh, the child of immigrants, but they did not come here by choice. His father was a diplomat and was exiled due to political factors. And so that, I think, is one piece of my, um, of my identity, is this idea of um, coming from a family that really chose to become Americans, which meant that they assimilated, to use that word, right, pretty rapidly, um, spoke English very well, went to wonderful schools, and so there were a lot of doors opened for me. Um, at the same time, they came from a place that has had lots of historical, political um, tension with the United States, and so I often tell people that I feel a little bit, I was raised feeling a little bit like the child of parents who were divorced, that there is this real American part of my identity that means a lot to me that I'm very proud of um, and certainly forms a huge part of who I am. But there's also this cultural Iranian piece of me that is sort of manifested in like the food that I grew up eating and the language that I can speak and my connection and having family um, in the Middle East. And so I think those two pieces, like the American part of me and then the culturally Persian part of me, um, are really important in terms of who I am and how I frame my identity. So let me ask you how then you are also, in addition to all of the things that we shared and many, many more, you are also a mom. I how yes. are you sort of infusing both of those pieces into your children as you have a, a daughter and a son, as they are now growing up in this particular social climate? You know, it's been really challenging, and I think in, in ways much more challenging for me than my parents, although I'm sure my mom would disagree with that. Um, but I think challenging, and, you know, not to get, like, too political about this, but I think, you know, so much of the personal is political, that, you know, I grew up, um, I grew up feeling very American and very welcome and very um, accepted. When my parents turned on the news, regardless of their political affiliation or how they voted, when they turned on the news and, and saw the president or saw the issues of the day, nothing that I saw reflected in that affected my sense of self or my sense of self-esteem or um, my sense of being a fully valued member of the American family. Um, you know, it's painful for me to say this, but I think that is not the climate that my kids are growing up in. I think that the climate that my children, um, that I'm raising my children is one in which a lot of the visual images that I try very hard not to let them see on the news, but, you know, see in, you know, especially for my son who's getting a bit older, um, a lot of the messages that he hears um, actually probably make him feel like he's not so much a valued member of the American family, that there's something about his cultural background that 
He has a mom who is an immigrant. He has grandparents who are Muslims, um, identify as Muslim and Muslim immigrants in particular. Um, and those are not necessarily concepts that are being discussed in a respectful way or in a compassionate way. Um, and so I think that is the challenge for me is to sort of protect him, but also be, be authentic um, and talk to him about that difficult topic. Well, and let's be honest, and I say this often, I have said it even during this series, it's always hard to grow up. I say this to my children all of the time and have since they were toddlers. Whether that is from an actual growth perspective or whether that's from the social challenges that come for many reasons, but in particular, my children have never had to add that extra layer of of a culture that is different or of skin color that is different or of family relationships that are different. And as we have begun to learn and talk about these things, what I find is that they will have a significant role in, in, in creating that welcoming environment. I had a conversation with a woman that I walk with some mornings and she said to me, it will be up to the parents of this generation, particularly the mothers, to set the example of how our children treat one another. And that with each generation, we hope that it gets better. What would you, and we'll get to, to our sisters, um, our black and brown sisters, and then how our white sisters can, can provide that support. But, but now that we have veered down this path, what would you want fellow parents to know, like as we raise our children about creating the welcome environment that you experienced for the children of this generation? Because everyone should, growing up is hard. It shouldn't be made more difficult by these social, I'm going to say the word stigma. I don't know if that's the right word. It, it sounds so harsh, and yet I think it is the appropriate term. What would you offer for us to know or consider as we have these conversations and take actions in our homes? I think that's such a powerful question, Crystal, because it really, what I, what I think you're asking sort of like, what is the values-based action that we can all take as parents, right? Yes. Um, and I think the, the big thing that I would say from my own personal experience, um, individually and as a mom sort of trying to navigate this terrain with my children, is that, that oftentimes um, I feel that there is much empathy, right? So when I talk to people about these issues, I certainly feel so much compassion and kindness and, and sort of a loving acceptance and, and sort of empathy, right? And I think that we are living in times that require us to do more than offer empathy to um, people and families of color. That sort of empathy is no longer enough. <laughs> and Absolutely. being a really good person with lots of feelings, um, though that is a fantastic start, um, might not might not be enough that we actually have to push ourselves in all ways, right? Whether it's around gender or gender identity or um, culture or race or religion, all these different factors, we have to push ourselves to not only personally be accepting and loving and empathetic, but to be of service to our community and the world in a way that opens doors and holds at the table and challenges institutional forces that would otherwise harm 
these individuals. So I think pushing all of us, myself included, to move from a model that is care and empathize to a model that is care and empathize and therefore act, like act in alignment with your values, right? Be of service in some capacity. And that, that looks different for different people, right? Some people post something on social media, some people show up to a protest, some people call a lawmaker, some people challenge the you know, financial aid program at their independent school. There's all these like myriad of ways, right, that we can that we can act and be of service. But I think that is the evolution that I would really want people to challenge themselves to see and make. So then let's talk about what that looks like. This is sort of the capstone of a series where we have had conversations with our sisters of color and talked about their life experiences and their AOPI experiences. What is it from an actionable standpoint that you would want our white sisters to know about how we can support our sisters of color from an actionable standpoint, like what does that look like with respect to our sisterhood? Well, we're really lucky that we have um, ritual as a as a guide and framework, right? So we have this core set of principles, which you know I don't need to detail. We all understand and share <laughs> that really um, that really serves, I think, as a foundation for how to treat others, right? That serves as inspiration not only around how to show love and caring and compassionate acceptance, but also um, to be of service to the world. Right? And to sort of constantly think about who am I and how do I treat others and how do I fit into this bigger picture of forming a more just, equitable world. Um, I think, you know, for me in particular, and this answer will, will vary from individual to, to individual, I think part of um, the challenge is really to pause and reflect and to take in what our sisters of color and of various backgrounds um, feel and share before we form our own opinion, right? Um, to really be willing to follow and not necessarily lead these discussions, to pass the mic and be willing to hear with an open heart what their experiences are. Um, and I think to start with that dialogue and that point of listening and reflecting, connecting it to our values, and then determining what the active step is. So I love the part about allowing other people to lead the conversation. What we often find is that, and I have said many times that simply by being a member of a Greek letter organization, you you are a leader, right? Whether you hold an office in your chapter or not, you are making a greater commitment to an organization. And in our world, we know that includes a ritual, it's based in friendship, it's based in sisterhood, all of these things. But I think sometimes we struggle to let other people and their experiences take the lead because we, we so want to show that we are empathetic and that we do want to understand. And yet we take away the opportunity to further understand by handing that microphone to someone else. And I love the idea that that is what will lead us forward. Because listening is often the hardest action to take because people find it to be inactive, but it is not. Um, you and I talked a little bit before this that, that we often take notes in conversations. I do the same thing because to listen is a very active task. 
particularly as we are listening in something that is so powerful in this moment. Um, as our, and I've, I've said this a few times because I see it often, that as our news feeds begin to go back to normal, the normalcy does not return to the lives of our black and brown sisters and friends. And I, I say sisters and friends, and I often catch myself. I, I know that young men, <laughs> men period, are also a part of these communities that we are referencing. But from the, the spirit of sisterhood, I, I often find that, that we, we do not give them the platform that they need to share the experience for us to to truly understand. Will I ever share that experience? No, I will not. By virtue of nothing else that I am pale and blonde, right? But can I listen to understand how to actively support my friends and colleagues and sisters and what that looks like? And for each of them, it may be different. Not everybody wants to go to a rally. Not everyone has the ability to financially make a different contribution, but how is it we can support those women? The reason that I have been very intentional to ask you here is that in the midst of all this, regardless of what that support looks like for our sisters, we do have to take care of ourselves. Our black and brown friends have been asked a lot of things in recent weeks and months. so, so in addition to processing their own grief and their own challenges and reflecting on their own experiences, our white communities are now asking them to, to take more time and energy and help us, like bring us into the fold so that we can do better. And, and yes, should we do our own research and should we read books and should we follow all of the things? Yes, we should. Ultimately, we are still leaning on our our black and brown friends to help guide us through it. Whether that's answering questions or whether it's, it's something else. And ultimately, none of us will be able to see this to the end and to create and affect change if we don't take care of ourselves. So one of the, the things that I would like for you to share with us today is how do we create self-care and build that into this so that we aren't tired and that the news feeds don't go back to normal and that people don't forget. I think, you know, self-care is, is a really, I think, complicated topic. When most people hear it, what they really hear is like a to-do list of things they need to do. And it kind of feels draining, right? Like who has time to go on a run or a walk or do this or do that, right? It starts to feel like in order to carve out self-care, I now have to actually add to an already overwhelmed schedule or an already overwhelmed to-do list. So I would first say, you know, when I think about self-care and wellness, I don't really think about things to do as much as I think about taking a mindful stance and accounting of how you're feeling, right? And so, you know, we talked earlier about listening and the importance of active listening. Well, you know, part of what I'm conveying when I'm listening to you is that I'm going to manage my own emotions, especially if we're talking about a difficult topic, right? I might be anxious. I might be defensive. I might be frightened. And I'm willing to feel those things and sit with them so that I can really hear what someone else is saying. So in the same way, I think self-care and wellness require us to, to first pause and reflect 
and be mindful of how am I feeling? What is really happening for me? And then mapping out some sort of solution or process that addresses that, right? So, so if you're tired, you can sleep, right? If you're feeling overwhelmed, you can take a pause from the news, right? Um, if you're feeling, you know, re-traumatized, um, you can actually make a decision to not view graphic material, which is like a totally wise self-care thing for some people to do. Right? And so I think part of the self-care is really about being willing to pause, being willing to mindfully scan and better understand your experience so that you can make a choice that is really in alignment with what is wise and right for you as a person and will ultimately, you know, ultimately give you the balance to continue whatever work you're doing. So oftentimes with patients, I use this analogy that, that you may have heard of, of you know, you're on a plane and one of the first things that the flight attendant will say is in case of an emergency, these oxygen masks will drop. Put your own mask on first before you try to attend to anybody else. Um, that actually applies in all sorts of settings, right? Um, and I think as women in particular, not to, not to um, too gender stereotype, but I think a little bit here is okay, which is we tend to put ourselves last. We tend to put everyone else's oxygen mask on and hopefully we're still, you know, aware and conscious enough that we can somehow get there ourselves. Um, that's what our culture expects of us. That's what institutionally sexist sort of um, power centers tell us that we must be doing, right? Um, that is sort of the role that is given to us um, in lots of contexts. And so I think there's something really radically, um, I think it's a radical action to actually pause and say, I'm going to attend to myself first because I deserve it and I need it. And second, because that actually will fuel me for whatever work lies ahead. So I find that fascinating. Number one, I love as much as I fly when we are not in the midst of a pandemic. I love that and would never have applied the, the put your on mask on first to the real world outside of an airplane. <laughs> I love this so much. The, the other thing is, I think you're right. Like anytime, I, I'll take me for instance. Last night, I got home. I'm not a late night person. I'm not a night owl. It was 1030 and I was barely keeping my eyes open. And I just thought to myself, seriously, I haven't done a face mask in two weeks and I cannot take 20 minutes at, in this moment. I, it just wasn't going to happen. And, and then I think, but I spent this stupid amount of money in this little jar. Why don't I just put it on my face? And and if that can't happen in my world, where where I am given so much support by by the men in my family, while still sometimes there is an imbalance, I would say, and and I think my husband would agree in those expectations. But at the same time, if I'm not doing even the basics like that at the end of a, a, a normal day. It's really hard. I think you're right. People assume that it has to be sort of this built-in checklist, and now we have to add seven hours into our week so that we can be able to do the rest of the things. And I love that sometimes the, the comfort in that is just go to sleep. Right. <laughs> like it's okay. You're right. tired. You need to not yeah. be tired tomorrow. <laughs> and, that, and that's so you're illuminating like perfect example of, of what I mean when I say start with being mindful of how you feel rather than start with the list that you have to go through, right? Yes. Um, so so if, if, if you're tired and you're feeling overwhelmed, then, then the right, quote unquote, or more effective self-care mechanisms actually rest and sleep and rejuvenate, 
not, I have these 18 things that I normally do to show I take care of myself. I right. wash, I tone, <laughs> I mask, whatever it is. And that's all fabulous. Right. And if it helps you feel more balanced and well, then more, I mean, fantastic. Let's do it, right? But the unused jar might actually represent better self-care. Right. I, I mean, it really, it does. It really can. And so I think you really have to start with how am I feeling? Where is my body? Where is my mind? Right? I often will tell people, do a simple body scan. Just take 30 seconds, take a few deep breaths, and start with your toes and move up. How are you feeling? Is there tension? Is there discomfort? Right? Check in with yourself. Like, am I dehydrated? Am I hungry? Like, how am I, how are the basics going for me today? And from there, you can figure out what you need versus starting with some construct of I must be the person that does A, B, and C. And even if that's fatiguing or no longer working for me, I'm just going to power through. Um, and as women, we're also given that message of like, keep calm and carry on. Mm-hmm. And these are times that are really dark and trying for a lot of our sisters. They don't have to be calm and carry on. Like if you need to collapse, collapse. Right? What a wonderful message. To, you know, whatever it is you need, start with that. Yes. Well, and it's interesting that you say that because I find that, so for instance, many years ago, I took French lessons. I'm terrible at French. I don't know why the woman continued to make the effort to teach me, except that she is an outstanding human. And of course, then I had children and we opened offices. It just life happens. And and I decided during the pandemic, I would download an app and start learning French. And now every evening, it pings me that it's been so many days and don't I want to start a streak? And I'm like, actually, no, no, I do not. I would love to sit and have a coffee in Paris right now, but that's the extent of what I can give this little app. And, and it's interesting because I, I do feel a little bit guilty every time I swipe that little reminder away and I've never thought to give myself permission to not feel guilty about it because that was great for about a week <laughs> when I was done. And, and it's not that I'm not accomplishing other things. I'm just not learning a new language. <laughs> right, right. Well, and here's the thing. You know, time, I also think we need to recognize that with time comes change. Who I was week one of this epidemic is very different than who I am now. Um, I am not baking <laughs> because I hate baking. Um, <laughs> I started off baking with my daughter mostly because she was home and she's in kindergarten and I had no idea what else to do with her. And but but you know it's okay to give myself permission to kind of come back to a balance point and to use how I feel as a compass to direct the action. Right. And what I figured out was actually baking with her is making me stressed out and making me feel more cooped up and frankly more aware of what ingredients I have and don't have and need to go to the store for and all of it was just like too much right for me um, and also I live in an urban environment so it's a little bit more complicated to navigate sort of grocery shopping so what I figured out was I'm kind of getting irritable and this isn't really fun for me what actually would be fun is to teach her how to ride a bike right? We're both outdoors. She's learning something. I'm being productive. I'm taking a break. Like it, so it's about figuring out if I'm uncomfortable or irritable or agitated or unhappy or something sort of bumming me out to use that as really vital information to figure out what you do next. So if the ping on the app is giving you joy and you're saying, yes, it's time for French, we oui, then go for it. If the ping on the app is making you bummed out, maybe that's really important information, <laughs> right? Yes. I don't know how this came about to be my friend. 
but it is true. And, and I think as as women, and, and now I, I do find it to be true that as we are really, I think, I think all of us, I hope all of us, let me say that, are, are being intentional in self-reflection. How have we treated people? How have we taken advantage of a system that we didn't even know existed? How have we benefited from systemic racism? How are we grappling with the fact that all of us all of us, whether we realize it or not, have, have been complicit in this and in grappling with how that makes us feel. And then how do we then extend it to be better, to do better, and then to be actionable. And then on the flip side, for our black and brown sisters who are like, we've never known a world that's not like this. And having the patience to let the rest of us get there to understand how we can partner and do things. I think it's really amazing to say, this doesn't bring me joy. This is not helpful. And if I can't do this in a proper headspace, then I'm not helping you. And I'm not being a good ally. So to step back and say, I don't have to do a French lesson tonight or or do the four things that, that somebody on some other podcast said you must do to have great skin in 10 years or whatever, <laughs> right? Because that's sort of where our mind goes to that checklist, that, that proverbial checklist you referenced. I think that it's, I, that may be the greatest advice I've received in months is just to give yourself permission to let things go so that you can be a better person in the things that you want to be intentional about. Because I would much rather be intentional in having conversations like these than I would in clicking on an app of any kind or cooking. I do love to bake, but the cooking part is beside yeah. me, right? So, so I love this. Um, I would like to ask you, and for those who listen, they know that these are not questions that are made up in advance, but I think that you have such a fascinating perspective. And as raising a daughter, and particularly one who has such a beautiful cultural background, what is the world you hope that she will enjoy? Like, what do you envision our world to be for her when she grows up? I mean, that hearing that question just makes me really, um, it brings up so much emotion, Crystal. I mean, because I think you're really asking not only like how I see the world, um, how I want to see the world and like that discrepancy is one that's pretty painful because I feel we're very far away from that right um, in some ways but I also think I also I also think that there's lots of hope because she's already exposed to a world that is very different than the one I grew up in which is very different than the one my parents grew up in so I think it's really important before I even attempt that question to sort of pause and reflect on the fact that though things are dark though things are incredibly painful right now, um, they are also continuously changing and evolving. And I think, you know, bending toward justice, so to speak, right? That, 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 that it takes a very long time to get there, but I feel like we are in the right trajectory on lots of levels, right? Just having this conversation, this is not a conversation that would have happened when I was initiated. It's not a conversation that would have happened 25 years before that, right? Um, so, so things are changing and she is a part of that change. Um, I want for her, for the world to be as she actually, in this innocent place, assumes it is, yeah. right, for both of my children, right? Um, when my son 
was exposed to the idea of police brutality. And he's in fourth grade now. So this is probably something that became active part of his consciousness, um, sadly too early, but probably last year. So about 12 to 18 months that he's been aware of this. Um, his first reaction in my conversation with him was, but that's, that's racist. And he said something like, that's evil. That's not going to happen always, right? <laughs> so he had this sort of perspective of like this very simple child, sort of childlike but beautiful naivete about right and wrong, right? He immediately put it in a frame of what is right and what is wrong and the good guys will eventually win and like bad ideas will go away, right? There's something really pure about that, right? I understand as an adult, it's much more complicated, but I sometimes wonder if really the world that they are given needs to be a little bit more simple, where we come back to the foundations, and this is again why I love our ritual, because it brings us back to the foundations of we know in our heart what is right and wrong, and if we take action in alignment with what we know to be true from a values perspective, many of the institutional and daily struggles, will it go away, right? It's where there's a discrepancy between our understanding of right and wrong and forces, right, that are powerful. That is where the pain is. That is where the evil is. That is where, that is where the problem is. And so the world I want for her and for him, but for her in particular, because as a woman, she carries this extra sort of layer of burden, right, um, is I want her to feel like there is some acceptance of universal core values and that more people than not are acting in accordance with those values. And that that means slowly over time, the world becomes a more just place. Absolutely. Shaku, thank you so much. I have, I knew this would be a wonderful conversation, but I have been so... <laughs> So happy to have it as we have discussed all of these things. And I appreciate you sharing your sisterhood, your life experiences, your professional wisdom with us. And I cannot thank you enough. These are hard conversations. And what I want to encourage all of the women who are listening is that while this may be the end of this particular series for this Coffee Talk, I do not want this to be the end of the conversations. And I hope that everyone will take what they have learned in these weeks and heard in these weeks and that they will create change. They will use it for some self-reflection, that they can reach out and have the hard conversations, and that they will utilize the things that you have shared today to help replenish and rejuvenate their bodies and minds and spirits so that it can start all over again because I would also love to see that world for all the little girls and boys out there um, and hopefully it's not as far out of touch as sometimes it seems so thank you thank you and to everyone out there listening as always thank you and until next time stay safe and be well mm -hmm.